Hi, uh, just a note to listeners that in the second half of this episode, we talk a little bit about suicidal ideation and uh, nothing in detail, but I just wanted to let you know. Hi, this is Sarah Zar, and you are listening to This Creative Life. Find out more about this podcast and all the episode notes at thiscreativelife.substack.com, which is the podcast home as of 2021, where you can also learn about the annotated Courageous Creativity audio I'm making for paying subscribers if you're interested in that. Or you don't ever have to go to Substack. You don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to get emails. You can just set your app to alert you when there are new episodes and you will not miss a thing. Um, And you can be free of email garbage. Um, And you can also support the podcast with a one-time PayPal thing if you're not into the recurring charges era of content TM. Um, Great. My guest today is Walter Chow. He is a writer and critic writes movies and writes about movies in the form of film criticism and reviews, mostly at Film Freak Central, and also in his monograph on the movie Miracle Mile, published in 2012, and in other places. Among the highlights of stay-at-home life for me have been Walter's Saturday matinee movie talks via the Denver Public Library, where he and a guest do a really deep dive on a particular film, but not in an annoying way, which I feel like is rare. (laughs) And uh, those talks just made me want to get Walter on the podcast for a chat. So welcome, Walter. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really uh, grateful and humble that you would think of me um, for your podcast. It's very cool. Thanks. I, I think you're so, um, I love your breadth and depth of knowledge of movies. And like I said, your ability to talk about it in a way that is not annoying to me, but we'll get into that. <laughs> we'll get into that a little down the line, but um it's hard, as I was doing research for this episode, it's hard to find a bio on you. There are lots of places where your writing appears, but I found almost nothing that's like a bio. Even on the um, cover of the Miracle Mile book, as I recall anyway, my copy is back in Salt Lake and I'm in the Bay Area right now. But <laughs> um, So I did find some stuff in an old interview or two, uh, but are you just cagey and private or do you feel like, why do I need a bio? I, I, I think I just find myself not interesting. And I, I think it's interesting that you find my find me not annoying because I find myself terribly annoying. <laughs> and, you know, when people ask me to write a bio for whatever piece it is, you know, whenever I have a new outlet or um, doing a book blurb like the one or two times I've had to do that, uh, I just I can't think of anything that's interesting to say. And I usually kind of default to, well, this is where I write for. And I have a dog, two dogs, and my family's great. That's my bio. Well, we're going to, this whole podcast is going to be about proving to yourself that you're interesting. Oh, thank you. That would be, that would be lovely for my mental health, I think. (laughs) Um, I did find this older interview where I got some info um, and you said, and I quote, I was born and raised in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, where I went to school with the children of Denver Broncos and Coors. And at first I thought that was a metaphor. And I was like, oh, snap on Colorado. Uh, but then I realized you literally meant like children of NFL players 
and alcohol magnates. That um, exactly. That that is exactly yeah. my experience. Yeah, I was uh, <laughs> I was one. I think of two Asian people in the whole high school the whole time that I was there. Three years I was there. I think there were some other minorities scattered in and out. Uh, but the, the, our, our our high school nickname unofficial was White Rich. White um, Rich, not Sweet Ridge. Because uh, uh-huh. that's what it was. That's what it was. And so, I, you know, the joke that I make mordantly I used to was that I didn't know that I was Chinese until I went to college. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there, there's some truth to that. I was you suspected. Really, uh, <laughs> I suspected there was something going on. You know, I had to, I had a couple of uh, heart to hearts with girlfriends, fathers who, 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 who <laughs> were very clear to me, you, you know, with me that uh, I was not sufficient. And so, you, oh. know, you know, that's the environment, though. I mean, we, you know, and and. Not to cast aspersions on the Coors kids, you know, I went to school with a couple and very nice kids. It's not them. It's just the whole mm-hmm. environment, you know, was very much the, uh, that, you know, rich and white and privileged. And um, I didn't think that there was anything other than that. So that was the society to which I most ardently hoped to assimilate into um, using some yeah. of those loaded terms now. But and and that's what I did. And that's what I did. And I think writing and speaking was uh, two of those things that I did to try to camouflage my Chinese-ness, although one of the uh, uh, horrors, quote-unquote, of being a, a, a visible minority is that you can't actually hide that. So mm-hmm. um, that that's the thing that becomes more and more, you know, the uh, bugaboo that you wrestle as you get older. Yeah. Um, so you're, are you first, first generation? I am. My parents came over. They were born, both of them, in the mainland, and they uh, immigrated to Taiwan, as so many Chinese mainlanders did when the communists mm-hmm. took over. Um, from Taiwan, my parents came to the United States on academic scholarships, and then they, they stayed. Uh, my mom went to uh, Wichita State University for um, – I probably got that wrong. I'm, I'm not very connected, unfortunately. That's still Kansas, sister. you're saying? That's Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another it, super white place. Super white. And my dad went to the Colorado School of Mines to finish his advanced degree. And between the two places, they decided to settle in Colorado. So I was born here in Colorado in 1973, and I was raised in a really kind of Norman Rockwellish existence in downtown Golden um, until I was five mm. or six years old. My dad had a little – silversmithing store down there he was a geochemist but he was an entrepreneur as well as so many immigrants are and he opened a a store where he fixed people's jewelry and sold fossils but i ran around downtown golden as a little kid i caught flies in the corner barbershop for a penny a head i caught them with uh little specimen bags that my dad had to sell gems Mm -hmm. in and I would release the flies for a penny a head in the rival sportsman store, two two doors down. The, the, <laughs> so, um, and, you know, Golden, Colorado has a really bad uh, fly problem, I guess, because I would earn about 50 cents or 75 cents a day doing that. The barber <laughs> on the corner that employed me in such a pursuit, he, he was the uh, mayor of Golden. So really kind of a small town, really, really small town. And I would it is that... beautiful there. Oh, I man. Mean, Colorado... It, it, it's great. It's just, I love Colorado. Yeah, it's great. And, and people have asked me since then why I haven't moved away from here, given, you, you know, a lot of the stuff that goes on in the non-blue areas of the state. And I said, well, I can't just leave it to the jerks. So, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but I, uh, I would take, uh, I would take all my earnings for the day and I'd go across the street to the, to the literal five and dime. I'd buy comic books and silly putty and gum. Um, so my upbringing really is very bucolic um in that way in a saturday evening post literally kind of way Um, but i didn't speak english until i went to school uh could because my parents didn't want to teach me english with an accent which they had so so you spoke 
Mandarin? Mandarin, oh. exclusively, mm-hmm. until I was six, six or seven. Um, and then when I began to speak English, I spoke it with a really crippling stutter because uh, I think, you know, it's it was tense stuff. Uh, and I got teased a lot uh, for, for a lot of those things. And didn't lose my stutter until sixth grade when I was chosen to read something that I'd written about my experience going through elementary school. And they asked me to read it in front of the student body, which is terrifying anyway, but for a kid with a stutter. But I did it, and my dad a couple of days after that said, hey, did you notice that you haven't stuttered since you read that in front of people? Huh. And I haven't really stuttered since. I still stammer sometimes, but um, but it was, it was a pretty crippling stutter. Uh, anyway, that's, I think, the roots of why I began to look towards writing as a way to... Uh, to express, because yeah. it didn't involve the speech part. Correct. Yeah, so you're this... Chinese American kid in very white Colorado suburb. Um, how, like, what's the entry point for you with movies? Well, the first movie that I saw in the theaters was Star Wars in 1977. I was born in 73. I was like three and a half years old, you know, four maybe when, when I saw that movie. And it was obviously before I spoke any English and everything. And I was, you know, astonished. It's, uh, I, I, I did, I couldn't believe that, that, that was an experience, you know, that was available. Obviously when you're four years old, everything's astonishing. But for me, movies were really this place. And as I stuttered and as I was like, I was not able to connect with my peers and, um, you know, I had a couple of friends, but, but not that many, you know? And, and so movies were always a constant friend. And there were also means by which I could learn to speak English, you know? And so mm-hmm. I would watch as many movies as I could possibly watch, not in the theaters, but you know, on, on, on television on local syndication and stuff. And I would read a lot. My parents would bring home books from garage sales that they themselves had not read or not familiar with. And so I read like these these library bound editions of Dostoevsky when I was in fifth grade, not that I understood them, (laughs) you know, I'm not a super genius, but I, I, you know, I read them because I needed to know, I I needed to read English and, you know, even in translation. And uh, one one of the, one of the tasks I had too, was they would bring home boxes of records from rummage sales or garage sales. And I would transcribe all the lyrics on an album to, to help to practice writing and reading. So, you know, all of Simon and Garfunkel, pass through me <laughs> in some way, <laughs> um, in that way. And, and, um, but yeah, movies, all of popular culture and media were my means, were my study materials for me to become more accepted. I hoped by, mm-hmm. by, by the ruling culture to say, look, man, I've seen what you've seen. I've heard what you've heard. I I've experienced what you've experienced. I'm actually just like you. And that, so much of my early life, even, you know, and I realized up till I was 40, probably has been engaged in that real desperate. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. Let's talk as equals. And let's forget for a moment that I'm Chinese if we can. Mm-hmm. Um, even, but at the same time, I mean, there's this parallel truth that it's like in none of that stuff that you've all seen. Are you seeing yourself? True. True. And I, I mean, that's. I think that's what's interesting about having an an obsession or love, like however you want to describe it for movies in particular uh, and TV, um, just the visual medium. It's like, it gives so much, but it also can take away. Um, I experienced that myself in a very low key way of being like, where's the female Paul Giamatti (laughs) and Steve Buscemi, you know, where's like the ugly quirky, middle-aged 
character actress getting amazing roles and stuff like that but but i mean in a much more intense way that experience of not seeing yourself in this thing that you love so much um did you start thinking about that early on or was that like a later consciousness yeah you know it was i tried to avoid thinking about it certainly you know but it's sort of thrust upon you as 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 you you realize that when people say it's a monoculture that's being reflected it's more than just a racial thing right you know sort of to your point it's a gender thing and it's a body type thing and it's a thing thing it's a big thing and um you know, I, I remember when I was, uh, when Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out in 1984, that was the same year that I think 16 Candles was released. So, so suddenly you have these two oh large, <laughs> yeah, the, these two big, suddenly, um, Asian models that, that my friends could now, now, now compare me against. And so I was right. asked all the time to do short round, the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was asked a lot about Long Duck Dong. Um, you know, and what's a happen to hot stuff. And I would do the Chinese accent and I would get laughter and approval. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really funny in a really sort of selling out my culture sort of way. Uh, you know, when I do the Chinese accent among my friends, there's a sense of like real relief. Like, Oh, thank God. Thank God that I can actually, you know, it's wrong, but now I can laugh because he's doing it. Oh kind of man. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, definitely you look at the monoculture and you say, uh, and to, to the extent that it actually bred me to be racist towards Asian people, to have, to, to sure. share the same. Yes, yeah. that internalized, I mean, we, we all internalize that, what we're seeing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have such hostility. I had such hostility towards Asian culture starting like in, you know, middle school to, to, and it's been this sort of very strange process for me to, to combat it. To mm-hmm. say, um, boy, I have to stop hating Asian people because I just, that's all I see when I look in the mirror. Maybe that's why I don't look in the mirror very much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, oh, and, man, and that, 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 that comes out through the process of writing as well, you know, um, where, where yeah. you're just really wrestling with yourself. That's true. That's true. Um, you also, yeah, you mentioned in this interview that I read about the experience of watching movies is a lot of like self therapy too. And like, reviewing is a little bit like that where you're just like why why am I seeing this particular thing what am I taking away from this movie and why it's kind of intensely unique to whatever our own experience of life is yeah you know I I like to say you know whenever I would teach classrooms or speak in front of a group of people that are watching a movie together I would say you know that's what what one movie was shown but 300 movies were seen Mm -hmm. um that and, and it, it, it's one of those platitudes that people always say. It's like, oh, you always see your own thing and the opinions and this and that. That that That's all true, but I, I don't know that enough people, I wish that more people, let's say, actually dug into why they responded to the things that, the way that they respond to. And, yeah. you know, it, it's almost like finding a black hole in space. You can't really actually see it. Like, you're, you, it's your bias. You can't actually see it, but you can see how it affects other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you know it's there. So when you're sitting here and you're saying, I just don't like this movie, I'm like, but that movie is the same as this movie starring Brad Pitt. Like, oh, well, maybe I just don't like Angelina Jolie. And why? Because she's like, she actually seems like a decent human being. So what is it? What is the bias that you're you're holding here? And maybe that's the way that I would like you to interrogate this movie. Because, you know, I, I don't believe that you can read anything that I write and know more about the film. It, that's the, 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 the film is an object, but you do know more about me, um, 
when you read it. If you read, you know, if you've managed somehow to work your way through five reviews or something, you, you, you have a good idea of who I am at any moment in time. And that changes. You know, I, I look back at things I've written 10 years ago and I say, that's not me anymore. I don't believe those things anymore. Uh, but I, re I understand now looking back why I did believe those things and hopefully have grown. Um, but yeah, I, I think that art ideally can be catalyzing for self-examination, for your own understanding, better understanding of who you are and your relationship to the world. I, I don't know that it serves any greater purpose than, than that, to that, that sort of connectedness. Going back to what I could glean about you from heavy Googling, um, you, you ended up in college studying British romanticism and critical theory. That's right. How'd that happen? Um, well, I, I wanted to disappoint my parents as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, I didn't desire that, but that was the outcome. I actually went into college as an, as a me mechanical engineer mm -hmm. and did, you know, a couple of semesters of that, of that before, uh, I realized how truly unhappy I was. I did a lot of self-sabotaging. I look back at that period and I was like, I really wish that I had, because we're, you know, capitalists. I really wish I had pursued something that actually would have given me some sense of security. But as soon as I say that, I wouldn't have met my wife. I wouldn't have, you know, met the friends that I've met. I wouldn't be sitting here with you today on this mm -hmm. lovely Monday afternoon. You know, I, I wouldn't have those things. And so how much should I? actually regret not being a mechanical engineer, you know, and, and, and part of the problem there was too, was that I, I, I looked around and these were people, a lot of them, um, that w were not comfortable with language uh, or expression in the way that I wanted to express, um, for whatever reason, you know, that they they were drawn to engineering. There's the cliche and I think it's holds true a lot in my experience anyway. Um, I just had a hard time communicating w with those guys. Uh, and I really desired and needed um, friends, and it wasn't there. And I wanted girlfriends, and I wasn't finding them there either. And I, I just, you know, I wish I was motivated by more than that. But you know, well, I also I mean, hated you were like equations. twenty, so yeah, I was twenty. <laughs> Let's not be too hard on you. <laughs> such a jerk and so so stupid. But you know, and 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 so I I, I switched um, sort of mid course my freshman year, and I said. Uh, Nope, I'm going after English because I'm interested in that. And English was the only place at the time that, that had cinema studies. And I was interested about that, too. I was essentially wanting to go into an area where, you know, I could I, I could dig a little bit deeper into these things that I truly liked. They were life preservers mm -hmm. for me. Um, and I wanted to know why a little bit. So that's how I got started. And then, you know, you go into graduate school and what do you pick? I love poetry. I think poetry is... I'm, you know, I love music too, but I'm not a, I'm not a musician. And so, uh, poetry, I wanted to understand that a little bit better. British romanticism is, I love John Keats. <laughs> I think that's what it is. And, you know, that's really only six poets between a very limited time period, 1789 to 1832. And so I was like, okay, I got this. Let's get real, real granular here. And so, um, had a great advisor and a good experience there as well. And from that, it's any kind of poetry degree is a critical theory degree, I think, mm -hmm. to some extent, um, finding a job and understanding, you know, I, I started my own company. I did other stuff first. And then my dad had a heart attack when he was 52. And, um, I was like, I can't be like that. You know, he's been an entrepreneur of the stress. It really estranged him from us. Uh, it really, I could see it impacting his health. And 
I didn't want to do that. So I sold my company and I bought myself a year and I did uh, freelance writing. I got picked up by, by a film review site, Film Freak Central, where I'm still at actually. And, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't pay a lot, but it pays a little. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it, it, more than that, it made me, uh, it got me closer to the, being the person that I wanted to be, um, which was in conversation with this culture, uh, maybe I should have gone into sociology, but I think if you're good at writing, you know, whether it be novels or poetry or, or, or criticism, um, that, that, that you are a sociologist, I think. Um, yeah. 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 It is, it is. I do. I, I think about that a lot of like, why on the one hand, like I hate people, (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, like, I'm so drawn to understanding us humans and exploring why we are, how we are, and how it plays out in all these different ways and how we manage to still find these moments of truth and beauty and all of that. And, um, but at the same time, I don't want to, like, leave my house and talk to people. <laughs> it's It's an interesting dichotomy of, like, wanting to engage with culture but not wanting to necessarily engage with people well people are that's me i'm speaking for myself no no you're speaking for me too uh you know people are (laughs) scary they're dangerous they're largely i i feel like a lot of people are just unexamined um and they they wouldn't maybe act the way that they do if they had not if they had spent as much time in a dark room as i have Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I've gone through my periods of bullying. I've gone through my periods of being just the worst person, you know, and to the extent that I'm not that anymore has been a result of a lot of soul searching, a lot of those like dark tea times of the soul when you're standing in the mm-hmm. shower and you're screaming to try to forget <laughs> something that horrible that you said or horrible that you did. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and kind of coming to a place, hopefully that you develop some kind of empathy for others without, you know, I, 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 I have empathy for tigers, but I'm not going to hang out with one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because tigers aren't really self-examined, you, you know. Tigers will eat me, and they don't care if I have a. If family. they would just stop and think for a minute, just give it a second. I'm a sentient <laughs> being, man. Um, but 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 I, I think not unlike people, there's a real hunger I think to consume others, and you hope that you're on the right side of it. It's sort of like the Oxbow incident. But the thing with social media and, and and the world as it is right now is like it's all it's like the Oxbow incident, but there's not the morning after. The, 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 there isn't the scene afterwards in the bar where you're all drinking and celebrating how you murdered the wrong people and you realize that you did. Now it's sort of like, good, we did that. Now what's the next? Where's the next horizon? Um, and it just seems like, you know, when everyone is in a state of emotional turmoil, as we were even before the pandemic, uh, you know, with four years of this administration, even before, yeah. right? Um, a lifetime of trauma has led to this place where I think it's really important for us to be good scholars of humanity, um, which teaches us, I think, ironically, to avoid as much as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm laughing, but I'm also crying. Um, I mean, that thing about like the consuming, you know, I was one of the questions I wrote down that I don't know if you have any thoughts about, but when I think of criticism film criticism and then like the wider really wide circle of that where like maybe on the outer ring is like a type of person I call like a a movie bro like a film bro (laughs) the ones who are just like very want you to know how much they know they're right about everything uh, that 
And I see those tendencies in myself at times. Um, And I guess like a question I ask myself is how do you love something without being possessive of it or annoying about flaunting your knowledge? I mean, I'm, I'm extremely irrationally possessive of experiences of places, movies, songs, like on the one hand, I have the impulse where it's like, if you want to know me, know what I love. And I want to share that with you. On the other hand, (laughs) I just want to be the only person in the world who gets to have and experience everything. And um, that's my issue. (laughs) I don't want to project that on anyone else. But yeah, I do feel like behind sort of the, I guess the other side of the coin of a deep love or passion about something is that ugly, um, this is mine. I'm the only one that can have it. I'm the only one that can be right about it. If anyone has a different opinion than, than me about it, then now they're my enemy. Um, how do you navigate all that as, as someone who really loves film and also writes critically about it and is out in the world as a public person doing that? It's really hard. It's really hard. I think nobody wants to share their Wobby, you know? Um, yeah, and, and, exactly. and I think so- so much of our of the things that we love become this sort of i'm not i'm not trained in anything really but it's sort of a freudian fort da where it's like you know when when the parent leak go, goes to work in his example the the child projects his his fear and his love and his frustration and all, all those emotions onto like a toy car for instance and and the but and the car doesn't leave and the car becomes this representative of, of whatever it is or or like a teddy bear or a, you know something that you comfort with um, and if you're traumatized in this culture or or as we all are to some extent right it's not really a unique thing um, that that you look to things and I think what we're seeing a lot with fandom now various fandoms is this their fort da item is Iron Man or comic books or Star Wars as it was for me for the longest time and I need to know more about it than you do because it has meant more to me than it has for you possibly Mm -hmm. it could not possibly mean Star Wars cannot possibly mean as much to you as it does to me because that helped me become an American it did it helped me assimilate if I could play Star Wars on the uh, on the playground action figures if I could do that you don't know that. You don't get that. You don't. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're going to come tell me what this guy's name was in the bar. I I played with that toy. I know what that, that I, I have the package. Look at the package. I bought it when I was an adult and I have it in my office. And these are the fragments like, you know, T.S. Eliot talks about that I shore against my ruins. These are the fragments of, 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 of my trauma and my self-soothing. And I have used it to form sort of like this assassin bug armor. Uh, uh, against the world, all these dead things that I've, you know, you, you walk through the walls of my house, and, and, and you know, through my house, and, and you look at the walls and all the posters and all the art and all the things, all, some of them signed, and these are mine. I like this more than you do. If you tell me that you like Oliver Stone's The Hand, I'm going to show you my signed poster and my picture of the time that I spent with Oliver Stone and my essay that I wrote about it that I got published here. And I'm going to tell... And so... How do you fight against that? I I don't know. I I don't know. It, it, and I think if there was an easy way, we could cure people of their trauma 
we wouldn't have sort of this bullying culture. You know, I, I always thought like throughout the eighties, right? You watch movies like Revenge of the Nerds and things like that, and and and, and those were all warnings. Porky's, you know, those were all warnings that mm-hmm. if we took away the bullying power from jocks, the nerds were, were also rapists. The nerds were also bullies. That that they, they just didn't have the outlet in society, but now they do, and and right. so the people who rule our culture now are the jocks of the nerd world in a way, you know, the, the ones who are, you know, have, have created this different sort of bullying culture around these Fort Da items, um, that they're not able to address (laughs) appropriately. And, and if we are as individuals, you and me, um, to, to overcome that sort of tendency, I think it has to come with a lot of humility and this understanding that like, Man, I, I love movies, and I've spent a lot of time in my whole adult life, you know, writing and thinking and watching and meeting and doing all these things. The more that I do that, the more that I understand how little I know um, about this mm-hmm. stuff. The, 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 the more that I watch, the more that I realize that there's stuff that I will never be able to watch. I did the math in my head a little bit about how much time I have left mm-hmm. and how many hours a day that I have left in those years that I have left. I won't watch all the movies that I want to watch. I can't. Right. I won't read all the books that I want to read. I can't. I can't. I can't listen to all the albums I want to listen to. There's no way. No matter how quickly I do it, um, I can't do it. I can't do it. So if we can internalize, I think, that sort of humility to say, yeah. And, and, and I've also had this experience which where people will talk to me or at me about movies a lot and not know who I am if it's anybody mm-hmm. or, you know, at, at, at least not know that I've done some work. Um, and you know, it's, I, I share this experience with, with every single woman, I think in, in any professional field, <laughs> but they will tell me, you know, I, I, I had a guy really well-meaning once come up to me when I was running a couple of theaters and hand me a, the, a Blu-ray of Miracle Mile, um, that had just been released. And said, man, this just got released on Blu-ray. You will really, really love this movie. You should program it at some point. Um, give it a look, okay? You can borrow this for as long as you need to. Just find time to watch it, man. It's really great. And so I took it. I'm like, great, thanks. I'll give it, I'll give it a look. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I, and I did. Because he's right. It is a great movie, and I should program Which, it. Which, I mean, that's the thing. Like, that impulse is partly from... I love this thing and I think you're going to love it too. And that is an act of human, um, just like recognizing the person in another person who might like the same things you do. And that's a great impulse. Absolutely. Then why do I, when that happens to me, why do I react? Like I want to throw something and say like, are you kidding me? (laughs) I wrote a whole book. about. Well, instead of just going like, thanks man. Like that's, well, Super you know, nice I mean, you to think of me. all that stuff flashed through my mind. I'm not some saint, you know, I'm like, I, 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 I wanted to freak out kind of because I, I, I think in the moment I felt diminished. Um, like, yeah, yeah. How can you not know? But, but, but here it's like, I, I got an article into the New York times last year. Um, and for the first time ever, I think like 80% of my family knew that I was a writer. First time, like a like a real like yes. not just not not like a not, real writer, not yeah. not just a failure, a writer, <laughs> you know. 
Um, not not somebody who dropped out of engineering, you know, but but actually someone who's doing something. Um, and the first time ever I heard expressions of pride from people in my family, my far extended family, you mm-hmm. know, saying, this is my nephew, Walter. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> he got, he wrote about Asians in the times. He, he really has done something with his life. Finally, you know, we thought he'd <laughs> die before he did that. Um, and, and you feel diminished, right? And, mm-hmm. and when someone comes up and says, Sarah, you got to read Gem and Dixie. You're really going to like this book. <laughs> You, you won't believe it, you know, or ha- have you heard story of a girl? It got made into a movie. Give it a shot. Um, the first in- impulse is to like, dude, I have been fighting and fighting. I've had so many afternoons where I'm just crying myself on, uh, to sleep on my keyboard, trying to find the right word. I finally have a little measure of success. You come up to me and you destroy all. And, you know, the, the, there, there's no magic bullet except through sort of growing the scar tissue to get to the point where, to your point, you say, this is really kind. kind. I've reached somebody, mm-hmm. you know, or something has reached somebody to the extent mm-hmm. that which they were wanting to share it with someone else. And I, I, I didn't make Miracle Mile. I don't believe that I did, you know. But someone loved that movie the way that I loved it. And so... Mm-hmm. This is really good. My wife is mad at me about that still, by the way. She's like, he's going to find out. He's going to find out, and then he's going to be humiliated. And like, like, something tells me he's not going to find out because my name is actually on the Blu-ray. But if he does, then I hope that he sees it as kindness and not an acceptance and not, like, sort of teasing him. I wasn't teasing him. I, I was like, he's yeah. going to feel really like I'm, I, I'm a bro at that moment where I'm like, all right, bro, let me tell you about my journey with this movie, starting with turn the box over and look at my name there. See, I have put my stamp on someone else's art. And that's the other part of it too. I'm not Sarah's R. I don't have this great, you know, sort of well of, uh, oh, neither, uh, neither am I. No, but go stop. Ahead. Yes. Yes, you are. You, you are, if anyone you are, but I, 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 you know, I, Miracle Mile is not my movie. It's not mine. It, it's, the version that I saw is mine, and the way that I've internalized it is mine, but it's not mine. Star Wars is not mine, obviously. You know, I mean, These things are not mine. They are extant. The Mona Lisa is not mine, even if I have a t-shirt of it. It's, it's, so they're extant. And it's, if we can separate the extant from the subjective, then I think we get closer to not wanting to murder each other about these things. <laughs> um, I had this experience over the weekend where I'm like, I think, I think a big part of it is that having an awareness of it like a lot of people just feel that way and aren't aware that that's where their rage is coming from but i think the fact that i'm aware that i feel this way about things is probably good because then i can laugh about it because like over the weekend i watched nomadland Mm. and i have a whole history with the content of that movie where years ago we were kind of in a life crisis point I started doing my worst case scenario thinking, how could I still be free and survive if everything is taken away from me? I, okay, I'm starting to cry now. Um, I found those Bob Wells videos online, online of him talking, interviewing people who live in their vehicles, sharing information about how you could do this, how you can still be a free autonomous person, even if you don't have any of the material things you're supposed to have. Um, so I have like this whole, and then I bought a minivan, like I bought a used minivan with the intent of like outfitting it in such a way that I could live in it. Like we were never that close to 
any kind of financial disaster because we have like my husband's family, like friends, like just, that's not the issue. (laughs) It's what I felt inside about wanting to feel self-sufficient. And if, if, yeah, if everything's taken away from me, I'm still a free autonomous person who's not just existing at the whims of the system. And so that's like everything I bring to watching that movie. And so my feeling watching it was like, this movie was made for me. No one else is allowed. <laughs> no one else is allowed to watch it, like it, not like it, talk about it. I don't want to know what anyone else thinks about it. It was that most intense feeling of possessiveness over a piece of art that I've had in a long time. And um, but I was immediately aware of it and just thought it was funny. Like I just think it's a funny thing about me <laughs> that I could have that feeling of like no one is allowed to have this movie but me. But I think a lot of people experience that feeling and they don't see the absurdity in it. And that's where it becomes, turns into like violent language or even violent acts. Uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And and the thing about that too, if it extends to criticism of the film, right? So, so now somebody mm-hmm. that you like criticizes the film on other merits or has not obviously had, possibly could have the same shared experience as you do. And, right. um, and, and then it becomes a personal attack, right? Like someone is diminishing your experience now. This is obviously still traumatic for you. Just for somebody to say that no man lands, no good, no damn good, Sarah, you know, and then you're like, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. And I, you know, I had that experience with, with, with Rogue One, which for the first time in the Star Wars universe has an Asian that's not a joke. And, um, it made me deeply emotional. I, I, I've since cured my Star Wars addiction, by the way, Rise of Skywalker knocked it right out of me. But, um, but watching Rogue One, I was like, this is possible now. There, there are like Mandarin indicators in this. There are Chinese cultural indicators in this because you have two great Chinese actors. And people coming out in force, you know, hating Rogue One, saying, this is not, this is not. It was, I took it really, really personally. And yeah, you, you and I think it is this sort of d- diminishment, this feeling of diminishment. It's like, if you don't like Marvel movies, you've diminished the only thing that kept me alive through my suicidal years. If you don't like, you know, um, what have you, you know, that, 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 that you're diminishing me because this is the thing that saved me. And there's, there's room to talk about the way that art saves you. And then there's room to talk about art. Um, and those are actually separate conversations. (laughs) Yes. Uh, uh, if we can separate those things, we should, um, and we should acknowledge, you know, everyone's experiences. And th- I think the, the the big one now is Promising Young Woman, which is like neatly divided women critics, I think. You know, on the one side, hey, this is my experience of trauma, How, you know, and I don't care what you say about this. This is really mm-hmm. a good way for me to help start work through this. And the other side saying, it's just not a good movie. It's not my experience of trauma. And it, it, it's sort of, I think we need to have this conversation in a more direct way. And And the best critics, I believe, do that say, look, this could be really healing for certain people who share this experience of trauma. This could be the way that some people soothe. And this could also be incredibly triggering for other people with the same trauma who don't soothe this way. That should be the conversation about it. And then we can talk about how the movie's made and all this stuff. But because it's become such a cultural flashpoint with that variety of review by Dennis Harvey and everything, is for me suspiciously like a lot of unexamined mob behavior, mobbing behaviors, where we're like, I am not actually thinking through what it is that I'm actually upset about. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. We have that it happens kind of almost by the clock 
couple times a year in in the young adult world mm. and quote unquote YA Twitter because part of it is for a long time it felt like no one respects young adult novels so we have to respect them mm. ourselves and we're all going to support each other and then eventually that became like a lack of just open honest discussion about like the craft merits or demerits of any given work mm. so it's always like you're either for or against you're either like team ya or you're against it <laughs> and that's led to just not good things in my opinion and um in some in some ways yeah I, even I, saying that much i don't even want to go there yeah, um <laughs> no i know i hear you and and i think that's really the issue the dangerous thing that's happening here is that we we become so tribal and possessive and instantly vicious in groups about um, divergent opinions that it's actually squeezing off conversation. And I don't yeah. want to start sounding yeah. like a right wing nut. I'm not talking about cancel culture. <laughs> I'm not. I'm talking about the unwillingness to engage with your own personal, maybe emotional reactions with something. Yes. But whether they be positive or negative, it's important to sort of interrogate those things. That's actually the point, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. the for, for for me, the point of criticism or discourse of any kind is not to sort of dig your heels in. <laughs> um, and if, if that were all it is, then you can just sort of make a poster and, and have a polemic. And that's your, your slogan now, you know, uh, Spider-Man or die. That, that, that's your slogan. I get it. <laughs> Better would be to say that, you know, this is a representation of a kid who doesn't quite fit in, who has secrets that he keeps. That's going through bodily changes that has to get a job. That's humiliating for him. And it kind of keeps him away from his girlfriend and, you know, he wants to, you know, all of this stuff, the, the, these are amazing coming out um, met, metaphors in X-Men. There's amazing things to unpack about alienation in Superman. There's so much stuff here that was so valuable to people for so long that when you become the side of the oppressor uh, quickly because you found a tribe, that's what, you know, online does for you is like, no matter how much of an outcast you feel like and how many strange and violent opinions that you have, you're going to find 10,000 people who agree with you and suddenly you feel like, Wait a minute, I'm right. I'm mm -hmm. right, and, and 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 like, wait, am I the superhero? Exactly, <laughs> and, and and we we all make fun of these things, you know, the, these tropes in fiction where it's like, man was the greatest monster of all, you know. Turns out, <laughs> but that's true, actually. You know, at, at some point you're like, hey, wait a minute, it's not it's not about the monster, it's not about Frankenstein, it's about you, you, you are the person that's wrong about this, and that's really really hard to get to there. Um, uh, and I, I'm not always there, honestly. I I, I have so many biases oh, that I don't know either. about, which yeah. because that is the nature of them. They they are your blind spot. Um, and I just I can only hope that I continue to unpack them. And at the same time, I can only hope not to get torn apart when I say something. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know that 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 isn't violent. That isn't whatever. It's just sort of like, hey, maybe we should think about it this way. And whoa, you're just a guy. You're just a you know, okay, wait, yeah, yes, true, yes, true, help me understand that without saying that, yeah, uh, you know, whatever, let's, again, I'm going there, I shouldn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell anyone about this episode, it'll just be us <laughs> talking. Um, let's talk about Miracle Mile for a minute. Uh, I haven't seen the movie, and I haven't read your whole book yet, because I don't like to read a thing until I see a thing, um, but now, so now I need to see the movie. But I read enough of your book and I read the back cover and I've read enough of your tweets to know that, you know, you've had some struggles with depression and mental health and you're pretty open about it wherever you 
have a platform. Um, and I know a lot of listeners of this podcast have similar struggles, myself included, although less now than, than when I was younger. Mine turned out to be centered, um, or I should say caused by a certain thought and behavior pattern that I was having less biochemical, but when I could address my thought patterns, it helped. Um, but I'll, I just wanna read the back of the Miracle Mile monograph, which says, the summer of 1989 was a particularly turbulent one for Walter Chow, who found solace in a little movie about the end of the world, Steve DeJarnut's genre-bending Miracle Mile, part memoir, part critical study, and featuring the participation of writer-director DeJarnet, this monograph is an utterly unique chronicle of the Reagan era that examines how the most public of media can give meaning to the most private apocalypse. Um, apologies if I've pronounced DeJarnet's name wrong. DeJarnet? I, you know, I've known, you I have known Steve now for like 10 years. I, 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 I'm not sure. I should ask okay. him. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. I guess just, is there anything you want to say about it? Like, how does that experience of depression play out for you in getting writing done or not getting it done? What are some of the ways you know that you need to take care of yourself to, to help make your brain a friendly space for creativity? Any oh, thoughts about that? You know, honestly, it's not a friendly space for creativity, sadly. I, I just, it's, it's, it's so much self-loathing and doubt um, in there. And I wrote this thing about the movie Annihilation a couple of years ago. Because a, a you know close friend of, of ours, um, you know he uh, his daughter was having suicidal ideation. I think she was sixteen at the time, and reached out to me and asked me you know as sort of a, a, a sort of a last ditch sort of thing, you know try everything sort of thing. He reached out he and his wife and said, uh, "Would you talk to her?" Because I know that you struggle with this, you know, and we don't understand it. We don't struggle with it at all. And I don't know where it came from and yeah, all, all those things. And so I was like, yeah, what's going on? And, and, and she was in, 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 she was in the hospital at that point. She was institutionalized. And so I wrote her a letter. I wrote her a three page letter and I just talked about uh, my experience and I didn't give platitudes. I tried not to, I talked about living with it and I talked about, you know, how, Maybe you can come out on the other side, not cured. You're never cured. You're always in recovery. That that you see this as an injury to yourself. You see this as a major trauma that you need to overcome, just like a broken leg, just like something that's wrong that you have to deal with and work with. Um, but that there's joy. There's moments along the way that make it make survival worth it. That if I had succeeded in killing myself when I was 16, I never would have had these amazing kids that I have and this life and this life that I have. That I... I, I even if I don't feel it, I know it. And and, and when I wrote the Annihilation Review, it was sort of a response to my writing the letter and feeling drained and emptied for, after doing it. Um, and and, and, and you, you, using that film as a means by which I could talk about it. And I think that's what I do when... That's why I'm more of a reactive writer than a proactive writer, where I, I, I'll, I'll be moved by something. I won't really understand why... But I want, I, but I want to. And with Annihilation, it's like that's a movie for me about depression and about going into the zone. And days pass, and you don't know 
Why? And you haven't marked it. You, you wake up one day and it's Tuesday and you go to sleep and you wake up the next day and it's Saturday. And you've lost a whole week of productivity, of creativity, of whatever it is and the self-loathing that comes with that and how you enter into this kind of zone sometimes in the pursuit of annihilation. Um, and there, there's a character in it that cuts, you know, a, a, who self-harms that way as an endorphin thing or a stem or something. And I, I wrote that. And then... A couple of days later, you know, I got a letter and a couple of days later after that, I got another letter from people that I don't, I don't know, you know, who, who wrote into my, my editor, um, Bill and, and saying that I was going, about to kill myself when I read your review and no one's said that before to me, um, in that way, you know, in, 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 in that review, I called depression a liar. And that's the only thing mm -hmm. that has been constant in my life. Only thing. Um, and that's how I know it's a liar because everything changes. And so this depression angel that sits on my shoulder whispering in my ear at this moment, even saying, how dare you? Who are you to say this? You have no training. You're not an expert, except that you've lived it. Um, what arrogance, make a joke, be self-deprecating, mm -hmm. take, 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 you know, that's constant. That's a constant thing. And I was so scared having kids because um, you know, I told my wife, it's like, you know, my, my parents stopped telling me that they loved me when I was nine years old because they didn't want me to be, you know, arrogant. And so, um, I don't know if I'm going to be a good dad. I don't, I don't know if I can tell my kids that I love them. It's a hard thing for me to say. And so I, I was scared, but I practiced and every single day when they were babies, I told them I loved them. And every single day now when they're teenagers, I tell them I love them and they come for cuddles and they come for love. And it's like, mm -hmm. they're 17 and 15 and I feel like I did something okay there. But with my wife, it's still like once a quarter, maybe, that I tell her that I love her because it's scary for me that she'll reject me. And it's ridiculous. We've been together for 23 years, and mm -hmm. she's not rejecting me probably at this point. Um, but I still have to qualify it because I'm scared because I feel like, you know, my a lot of my trauma is related to my friends betraying me or, you know, telling a Confucius say joke after I've known him for 10 mm -hmm. years mm -hmm. um, and not knowing, you know, but hurting. And yeah. the, the same with my wife. I, I'm I'm waiting waiting for her to figure it out to say, Oh shit. I really, I didn't listen to my better angels. I should never have entered into this relationship with this guy. He's such a mess. He's such a failure. You know, the, the self-talk is constant it's and it's brutal. debilitating. Yeah. It's brutal. It's brutal. Um, but I realize that if I write about it, if I am outspoken about it, like any trauma, if I, if I drag it out from under my bed, uh, it looks a little more pathetic in the light. And it helps me deal with it in a different way, in a better way. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And if I can give voice to other people through whatever media that I, I, I do it through, that's also good. Uh, that, that's also good. No matter what toll <laughs> it might take on me to write it, I don't want to seem like a martyr, but it's hard. And especially hard, yeah, yeah. you know, especially hard when I feel like to, to our earlier conversation where I, where I put, put all this of me in there. And I don't know that a lot of people do that in criticism, especially but you can attack me in a personal, maybe mortal way uh, if you wanted to. You can do that and because I've talked about everything mm -hmm. if you choose to. And I've been relying on the, the mob not to. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I've really had over the last 26 hours, 38 hours or so, you know, um, I thought about walking away from it 
not suicide, you know, although suicidal ideation goes through my head a little bit, but really just saying, why am I writing? Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. I, I'll do it compulsively, but why am I sharing it? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've just left my flank open. There are people, and it's not just a few people, that are just sort of waiting, you know. And, and, and it sounds super paranoid and disturbed to say that, but it's also, there's evidence. Um, to They will latch onto your weakness the moment that you do something that assaults them. And, and mm-hmm. you know, real or not, they don't like to see the books. They don't like to see, you know, the the Saturday afternoon talks. You know, they don't like to see what seems to them to be success when really, for me, it's not success. Those things, whenever I have success, I wait for the other shoe to drop. I used to get punished when things good, think, when good things happen because, again, Chinese people don't want their kids to become arrogant. And so I, um, whenever good things happen, I, I, I spiral. And when bad things happen, I feel like, well, I knew it. I feel actually mm-hmm. comforted by it. Um, the urge to write is sometimes at odds with, you put yourself at the mercy, as yeah, you know. yeah. You know, of your readership, um, whoever the, whomever they may be, and I, 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 I want to have enough grace to forgive people when they are really hurtful. But there are a lot of differences between me and Jesus, and that's one of them. I don't have that, <laughs> you know. Um, and I mean, is the option of this is what comes back to for me sometimes, which I have a you know I, I have my own trauma. It's different. I I feel pretty safe out in the world. Um, I don't feel like I've been personally under attack, but when I think about not sharing my writing, that feels like a kind of a death too. Like I could write, but the sharing it is part of it, no matter what, what vulnerability that might bring. Well, I I love that you say that it's kind of death. I, I really like that image because in my mind, what I measure now, what I'm balanced, trying to balance now is this. What kind of death is preferable to me? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the death of being rejected for being vulnerable, being laughed at for being vulnerable, or the death of being privately vulnerable and not sharing that and having, you know, finding the usually silently, you know, approving or silently needing this because, you know, the nature of our trauma and the nature of, you know, my trauma anyway is that I don't really reach out when I should. Mm-hmm. You know, to people who've who, who've done something for me, um, and I've tried to be more grateful now and try to let my friends know how much I appreciate them because I realize that being um, I just don't feel like always that it's worth it, and yeah. I don't know how to write a different way, and mm-hmm. so that's you know the existential crossroads that I sometimes find myself at. I think that the the layer that writing fiction provides is really helpful for me on that front and empowering because times I've thought about writing more memoirish stuff, all those fears about vulnerability and like, what would people make of me if I was really talking about myself? Um, And there's something about fiction that allows an exploration maybe that nonfiction doesn't. And unrelated but sort of related i guess is is one reason i was like i remember watching a series of your tweets one time and i just messaged you i was like have you ever thought about writing a young adult novel (laughs) because i just think putting those experiences in a fictionalized 
form would be great for readers and, and maybe good for you too. I thought about it a lot and I've actually even written an outline for that after that conversation. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, I've, I've never written in a way that's not autobiographical. You know, it's really, mm-hmm. what I do is very solipsistic, you know, it's not, it's weird to say because I know that they're being published and whatever, but usually when I write things, it's not really intended for an audience. And I'm actually sort of, um, embarrassed when people have read it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, I've talked about this before with other guests and just one-on-one when I'm talking to writers and there's like some writers who get this and some who don't, but there are a lot of us who, when we get our finished book, with our name on it and it's going to be out there like our predominant like the dominant feeling inside us is shame (laughs) and like you either get that or you don't and i think you get that oh yeah no i just i feel i feel appalled i feel like i'm the guy that burped in the middle of a funeral or something you know what i mean it's like i feel and it's it's at such odds because you know intellectually that people are enjoying engaging with your writing and getting something from it. And like maybe even being emotionally moved or like they're feeling seen and understood. So, you know, that intellectually, but then why, why do we feel ashamed? Yeah. There's such a desert between intellectual knowledge and emotional knowledge. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) You know, I I know a ton of stuff. I don't feel any of it. You know, Um, I just, uh, it's hard. My goal is always to bridge that gap through various self-talk yeah. various forms of self-talk that are not that are not the brutal shaming voice but the the champion you know the internal champion yeah well it's a constant struggle right it isn't just something that you snap a finger and you say whatever and i think sometimes our public personas especially on social media can actually be damaging to people because they look at it and they say this is this is a perfect life this mm. is a gem of a life he goes on walks with his wife he you know, has this and he has that. He lives in beautiful Colorado with a dog and a wife and kids. Exactly. And what you don't see is the, you know, hours between the seconds of that post where you're, you know, you, you've been, your wife has tried to drag you out of bed for the last three hours to go on this white, this walk because she knows it will be a good mental health break for you. Yeah. Right. So it's just like this exulting, you know, I'm going to put on my, expensive gear which i don't have but i'm gonna put on this stuff and we're gonna go hiking out here we're he-man and my health is great you know that's no no what you don't you got you got to put the little like not pictured debilitating (laughs) not pictured how how much of a mess i was before they she dragged me out here and how much of a mess i'll be and how much of this you know behavior of tweeting and and posting a different sort of image of yourself is a is a a means of self-delusion too it isn't just trying to trick others it's trying to trick yourself that you got it together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got it. It can together. be it can be fragmenting. Um I feel like the older I've gotten, I'm I'm at least 2 years older than wiser than you. <laughs> <laughs> so I just just wait till you're 50. You're going to stumble onto a huge vat of wisdom. But <laughs> what I like about getting older is starting to integrate so that it's like these little fragments from whether it's like my worst thoughts about myself or my Instagram post about, you know, my cup of coffee or whatever, like they're all can be gathered under the same roof of me. And then I can embrace them all. Um, That's my goal. 
yeah. to be integrated. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in my mind at this point, I feel like, you know, so, so social media is like the gun that we gave a, a chimp. What? <laughs> What's, what's your, what does your writing process look like? Like whether it's a review or you're working on a script, like what's, what's kind of the process? Do you work in little chunks or long chunks or does the music help you get in the zone? What's, what's going on? Um, it's, yeah, gosh, I don't know that I have a good writing process. It's sort of manic when I can, it seems like it's 90% agonizing about it. And then 10% Mm -hmm. just like, kind of like ripping it out. You know, um, and, and then that's a process. Yeah, that's I guess that's it. And and then looking through sort of, you know, my 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 closed fingers to try to do another draft of it. Um, and the the music, what that does for me is like as I'm sitting down to write and thinking about it, and you know, researching. I do a lot of researching to so I don't make a bigger ass of myself than usual. And I um I I like vinyl because it forces me to stand up. And go and manually flip things. I really like digital. I think it's a miracle. I, I like the stream. You know, all that stuff. Yes. Mm-hmm. But with vinyl, when I'm writing, what it does is it be, it introduces something mechanical into what I do, which is not which is not physical. You know, really, not in that sense. I have a good friend who's an author, um, who writes longhand. He writes these long, you know, magnum opuses on yeah. legal pads. And he, yeah, I have friends like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and another friend who goes through like reams of paper and he just has a stack of loose paper that he's just written across and um it has to be physical it feels like what we do sometimes is so theoretical and for me vinyl the act of like standing up and going over and flipping it and also there's a soothing aspect of vinyl for me too because vinyl was i listened to a lot of records to transcribe them (laughs) when i was a kid and so those things become that And, and and vinyl for me is a lot like 35 millimeter film where it begins to develop um, Mars and pits and skips and, mm-hmm. and fuzzes, uh, just like 35 millimeter film does. Yeah. It's to the point where this the, the this copy of Animals, you know, the Pink Floyd album that that I've had since I was a kid, no one else actually has this copy of it, because no right. one else has the same pops and the same skips as this one does. I, I've I've worn it to the point where I can almost hear the other side of it. Um, mm. It tells a story that's mine. So in, in, in a real literal physical way, some of these albums that I'm listening to are uh, regressive therapy <laughs> for me to listen mm-hmm. to them. Um, to to the point now where I, if I listen to like Tangerine, the Led Zeppelin song on, on streaming, it doesn't sound right. Uh, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah. so that's what vinyl does. It, it's a physical thing, but it's also a soothing behavior and. I need the soothing. And also when I write, I need a place that's not only quiet in the moment, but, you know, free of interruptions, not quiet. You know, I like music when I'm writing, um, but, but also safe before and after. So mm-hmm. I, I, I need to feel okay going into it. I need to feel like no one's going inter- to interrupt me during it. <laughs> um, Cause if I feel like there's somebody that's about to come in or someone's about to tell me something, I'll lose it. And I'll be afraid to try it again because once I lose yeah. it, then it's it's like falling off a high wire in a way. Um, I don't want to make it sound so mythical or mystical. Really, for me, no, it's just a matter y- yeah, of being... you, Because like you said, there's like the agonizing where yeah. you're like, am I going to write? 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 And then you're doing it. And so it's like, don't... <laughs> because you just know like a, a strong breeze could like blow you off course. Yes. 
and I may not get on course again. I think about Coleridge, exactly. the, you know, the great romanticist who woke up from a dream and started writing Kubla Khan. And then a buddy from the street says, hey, you want to go for dinner? He says, yeah. And he's like, yes, I do. And then he goes and comes back and realizes he can't finish the poem. And I feel like I fear that. Not that, you know, Coleridge, of course, but Coleridge was beset throughout his whole life with self-loathing and addiction. And I think that, you know, I, I really identify the, with the romanticists because they deal with addiction and the unconscious. They're, they're really the first to do so in a meaningful way, I think, um, for that reason. But, you know, as we're winding down, I wanted to ask you a question. You said, yeah. before we started recording, Sarah, you said that you were nervous talking to me because I'm not a novelist. And it was you always felt more nervous when you did these, um, talking to people working outside of that media. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about why that was. Um. It probably has to do with feelings of inadequacy of just feeling like, what if I don't have a smart question to ask? <laughs> because the podcast is a lot, um, you know, speaking of things that are solipsistic, like it's a lot about me just getting to ask the questions I always want interviewers to ask, but they don't. So I, I have that feeling of like, if I want something done right, I guess I better do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so when it's, and I'm very confident and familiar with the world of novel writing and publishing, but other worlds are more mysterious to me. Like I have enough knowledge to probably sound smarter than I am, which is also dangerous. Cause I, I, I've been in conversations where I'm nodding and smiling and saying mm -hmm, to people who are talking about something that I want them to think I understand but then that's an invitation for them to go deeper into it and maybe ask me a question. And then it's like, Oh no, they're going to know I'm a fraud. Mm. So um, it's just probably all that. I feel that really strongly. <laughs> I feel it really strongly. I feel like, um, you know, you talk about those, the, the, those matinee shows that I'm doing for the library. Um, the horror that I have before each one is immense. Cause I, I, I was like, I just, why me? I, I'm not the best person to be talking about this. Are you kidding? You could get anybody better to do no, this. No, but you are, um, though. That's the thing. I'm going to give you an outsider's perspective, <laughs> which is you're so good at it, and you you know plenty, and you're really generous with your knowledge, and, and you're good at asking people questions. That's why you, you have good taste. Well, thanks. That makes me want to cry. But I feel like I've not really done anything in comparison to most others, and it's... uh. It's hard to get over that, you know. Um, I mean, that is the big thing we all, probably every human to an extent, well, not every, because we know there's some people who are <laughs> just happy not knowing anything and they think they're great. But um, I think most people I know in some way, shape or form, comparison and feelings of inadequacy and imposter syndrome are just like the most, just those feelings are so common among really successful working writers that I know. And I don't, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because what we do is really specific and, and just not very well understood either other than by other people that are doing it. And also no one cares. <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, no. no one cares. You know, you were talking about, Oh, if you don't want to have me on the podcast till this, like, Twitter thing I've been in blows over in case you get blowback. I'm like, no one cares about what novelists are doing. <laughs> um, people, you could be like the most famous person in uh, one segment of publishing and you're like far from a household name, you know? Uh, so no one cares what we're doing, which is a great freedom. And you're great at what you are doing. I'm great at what I'm doing. 
we don't have to compare it to what anyone else is doing. But as easy as that is for me to say, like you said, intellectually, yeah. <laughs> intellectually in my mind, everything makes sense. But emotionally, there's always that feeling of inadequacy, especially if you've had just any kind of family dysfunction, if you felt abandoned or rejected or various kinds of emotional trauma. It's just never, I don't think it ever goes away. I think it's just that process of like, how am I going to deal with this, be aware of it? For me, try and have a sense of humor about it, though I know that's not everyone's path. Um, yeah, what more can you do? Same. Yeah. And, and, you know, to your points earlier too, it's like, it's nobody's comparing traumas, you know, everybody's had trauma and all, all of it sort of metastasizes in some way mm -hmm. um, in what we do. And I think we'd all be better off if the people who had the most self-doubt were the people actually in charge. Um, Cause it seems like it's the yes. opposite usually. Exactly. You know? and it, That's the thing. I think the the metastasized trauma is worse when you aren't aware of it. And that's when it spills out onto everyone else and if you're a leader with that then we're really fucked um to end <laughs> <laughs> on a on a different note or i was gonna say an up note but it might not be an up note is there something um some like book movie album tv show anything that's like podcast something that is just like either i was gonna say making you happy but it could also just be like making you feel understood or just something you're loving right now yeah, well, PJ Harvey, she is releasing all of her um, 90s output on vinyl for the first time. Oh, wow. And, and alongside the individual album releases, she's also releasing demos from those albums on a separate vinyl release. So I've been, you know, whatever <laughs> extra income we have, quote unquote, I've been uh, investing in, in buying those as they come out. And, and it's been really great i love those 90s albums you know um is this desire and stuff and uh and and hearing the demos which are for her especially are sometimes better um than the originals that's that's bringing me joy i i, I like like visiting your website because you put this the playlists um ne next to your books and stuff and i love seeing what people's tastes are musically I feel, oh, feel yeah. like i get kind yeah, of a yeah. look at them i was like my website does it have that i guess it does it does it does and and you know through it I, I get a kind of a picture of you know your process as well and um that's been bringing me a lot of joy i keep watching you know um russia Do uh, russian doll the netflix series i've been wanting to rewatch that ever since you had natasha leon on on the Saturday matinees. Yeah. And I'm like, I gotta rewatch Russian Doll. Yeah, you know, I, I, I rewatched it right before having her on, and then I rewatched it again after, and it kind of brings me a lot of. It's not a happy necessarily show, but it's a very reassuring for me, particularly show. It just sort of says you don't have to be okay, but you don't have to be bad or not okay alone. And I love that message. It's really. It's lovely. also reassuring when other people are thinking deeply about the human experience yeah. it just feels like okay good i'm not i'm not the only one out here with these questions whether or not there's answers or they're like quote unquote happy or whatever but you feel less alone in just being in the questions totally and how great was natasha by the way oh my gosh is that one gonna be on the youtube um i think um, it's the next one being okay um, people listening i'll put it in the show notes edited. but if you go check out this episode of the saturday matinee where Walter is talking to Natasha Leone about um, the seventh the seal, seventh seal. Mm -hmm. It's so good. 
I left that conversation just feeling like connected. I just felt connected to my fellow humans. Yeah. Versus I, the disconnected feeling that we so often have. You know, and I felt that way after we had Guillermo del Toro on to talk about Spirit of the Beehive, too. We had him on mm. the week of the Capitol riot. And, uh, you know, the, the movie we did, Spirit of the Beehive, is about the Spanish Civil War. And he was able to talk really eloquently about how the society heals and doesn't heal after some, a schism like that. You know, and I, I found it to be really cathartic. And, you know, in my darkest moments, when I'm thinking just about quitting, um and not being a public figure at all to the very limited extent that I am. I, I just, uh, I think about like stuff like that, where I give a opportunity, hopefully to ask the right questions of a, a Guillermo del Toro or Natasha Leone. And hopefully some people like you <laughs> hear that and feel a little bit less lonesome for a minute. And that's maybe valuable work. So it also helps me remember why I care about making stories because there can be a lot of just noise where like the kind of story, especially that I like to tell, which is a quieter story is not like in favor right now. And so you feel like, does anyone even care mm -hmm. <laughs> about these little stories of families with teenagers in them? But um, when I have a really good connected experience of hearing other people talk about stories that fires me back up for better or worse. Cause I always, I always like take pains to say bottom line of all this, like for people that want to quit writing or become a private person totally or whatever, like that's fine. That's great. Like I, that's not a failure and that's not a shameful thing to decide you don't want to write anymore. I always say that because I've had students in the past who are just like, why do I keep doing this? if I don't want to really do it and it's like causing me a bunch of angst all the time and I don't want to be public, all of that. And I say that, you know, there's no, you don't have to. Right. <laughs> so that's the message. Anyone out there listening? I also want to say you don't have to at the same time, if you're one of those people who knows you're gonna, it's nice to know you're not the only one. Yeah, no, you're absolutely not alone. <laughs> and that in the end is a lot of what this podcast is about. And Thank you so much, Walter. It's been great to talk to you. Do you feel more interesting now? No, no, I'm sorry <laughs> for the editing that you're going to have to do now to make this a little punchier, but um, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to be asked. Uh, it was great. And I was, you know, normally at this point of the podcast, I asked the guests to give like their website and their social media hand handles and everything, but you're, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and your writing? You are writing at, you're the senior like film writer at Film Freak Central. Yep, filmfreakcentral.net. Um, it's a Canadian-based publication. My dear friend, Bill Chambers, has run it for 20-some years. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've gone, I'm publishing on some other places and stuff too, but I always come back to Bill because he's my uh, dear, dear friend. And, I, I, you know, more than anything, I want to write for Bill. And so... You know, whenever I turtle and withdraw, mm -hmm. I, I'll always end up back there. Uh, that's where you can find me. I will also include the links to the um, Saturday Matinee Denver Public Library talks, which are great if you love anything about movies. And um, right now, you're not on Twitter. That's fine. You are, <laughs> And if you never go back, I support you. Um, thanks again to all the listeners 
and subscribers. And thanks to Dave Connors for the theme music. Thanks everyone for liking and sharing the podcast. Stay safe. Get vaccinated if you can. Hang in there. I'm glad you're here.